Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Tap Into Podcast, recorded live here at the Once Did Tap. Which, for those people listening around the darkest corners of the internet, is a Victorian railway arch at the dark end of an East London street. Or for the psychogeographers out there, it's under the railway line Ian Sinclair calls the Ginger Line in his wonderful book, London Overground. But more about Ian later. My name is Dan Clapton, and tonight's guest really needs no introduction, but he's going to get one anyway. Would you please welcome John Rogers? So, John, thank you for coming. You've been with us right since the very start of the journey here, nearly 10 years ago. Um, And there was a wonderful quote in your first book about walking over the Wanstead Flats and getting that. That was wonderful. And that was my first introduction to you. That was, I think, the first time I met you, the first time I was told, there's this really great guy who lives in Leytonstone. You'd really like him. He's like you, but I I think the word was cleverer or funnier or both. But they said, you'd really like John. Um, and they said, oh, he just walks around and he just talks about stuff and he writes about stuff. And he's written this amazing book just about walking around and writing. I said, oh, and they said, well, it's kind of psychogeography. And again, I, I didn't really know what that was. So as John's sitting next to me now, John, what is it about walking and the love of walking and discovery? Um, thanks, Dan. That's a good, that's a really good way in. Um, because I think this episode is called what is psychogeography and I think I think a lot of people certainly when I've used it and a lot of people popularly just think psychogeography is walking so the, the, the two things are synonymous or it's a form of walking so it's a good place to start and then we can reverse engineer into we're going to get a bit French I will give a trigger warning at that point about my pronunciation it is is an abomination so if anyone is french they might want to mute this part um but i will but not just yet so we'll get on to that i'll try and lay some sort of groundwork which makes you forgive me for for the future poor french pronunciation walking around i mean if you think about it and it's for me it's it's actually something i've written in my notebook many many times actually walking is freedom um, and it's, it's a lot of different things, but in terms of why I do it, why I continue to do it, and what it means to me, and why it's actually essential, and why I suffer when I can't go for a decent walk, is that it, the, the, just the simple act of putting one foot in front of another feels like a really essential form of freedom. And a lot of my London writing, when I really got into my London research and really started to try and hone it a lot more, um, when I, you know, I was living at the Angel and I'd had a baby. So I'd obviously been writing and writing about place and writing about travel and doing lots of that kind of stuff. But in a kind of slightly ad hoc, you know, beatnik style way, I'd read On the Road and I was reading Henry Miller and all that kind and of stuff. And was this appearing anywhere? Was it being published in Bits pamphlets? And things? There was a thing called, um, I remember one of my first things actually that went into print in this country was in a thing called Smoke, which was around for a long time. Uh, the guy, I think the guy who published it is in Leighton, Smoke of London Peculiar. I bet there's people in here who've got it somewhere and um, or collected it at the time. That was sort of late 90s, I feel. But before that, yeah, bits and bobs and bits and bobs in publications in Sydney, but not really. Um, so that's going back kind of 20, 24, 25 years? Yeah, and I really started to sort of hone it down. It, when I came back to London in 2002, when I wanted to try and find, find a form for the writing. But, but at the time, 
and this gets into the heart of really one of the essences of what psychodrography is or where it came from, is at the time I was living at the Angel in a small flat and working at the South Bank in a small room in the box office at the National Film Theatre. And the period of time when I was walking, I was completely free to, to define my own experience of the city. I could have my own relationship with my surroundings. No one else would could consciously impose themselves upon me they could try to obviously with the way that a city is organized the way that traffic moves around all the sorts of things that are built into a streetscape there are obviously things that can be built in to influence you but when you travel on a bus when you travel on a tube for example when you drive a car when you ride a bike there's a lot more pressure can be exerted on you by the forces that act in our built environment and so walking steps, you step outside of that. You know, on a very basic level, if you think about it, the minute you form any t- type of wheeled transport, your route is dictated for you by where you can go yeah. on that transport, right? When you walk, you can go where you want. You can go wherever you like, you know, within reason. And challenging those boundaries is interesting and entertaining. And again, this is part of what psychodrography in its core is about. And it's an uh, uh, endlessly enlightening experience especially when you walk the same route every day is that it never is the same route because it's different every day also going back to the car when you're stuck in a car you don't experience the sounds one point with the smells i remember during lockdown i would would cycle from from wanstead to to spitalfields and you could almost tell where you were if you if you were blind or, or or if you just couldn't see where you were you would no, oh, I'm going through Victoria Park. I can smell the canal boats. I can smell the, the coal from the canal boats. I'm going through Spitalfields. You can smell the food and things. And if you're in a car with your air conditioning on, you just don't get that. No, you've got your music on. Ian Sinclair, the great Ian Sinclair, the, the wonderful writer who is most, uh, the, the writer most often associated with psychogeography and who psychogeography is most often associated with, along with Will Self. And we can talk more about that later because it's an interesting association. But, um, Ian talks about the idea of the pod and the ped. Like the car, you're in a pod, and on the street, you're in a ped. Cyclists are somewhere in between. But, the, you know, when you're in a pod, you, you, you're sealed off. Like you say, you're sealed off from smells and sounds, and you're having your own experience. You, you're piping your own sounds in, and you can't feel anything either. Um, when, you're, when you're a ped, when you're a walker, and you're out on the street, you're in your environment. You're not on it, you're not going through it, you're in it you and the environment can have a direct relationship with each other. And you can define that. That's entirely up to you, how you define that. And I think it's particularly profound when you are engaged in a routine economic activity, like you've got a day job, right? You've got a fixed job where you turn up at this time, you do these tasks, you leave at that time. These moments of freedom are essential. And that is really when you get to, you feel like you get to be a human being almost, you know, now I can be a person. And that's something that will link you in, you know, in my (laughs) sort of slightly elevated mindset in that when you're walking, that links you back to your forebears. This is like a thing that people have been doing since we stood up, right? Moving through the world. I grew up in a real petrol head environment Um, so actually but I also grew up in an environment where you know I grew up on a council estate my dad um, was I I would say you know one of the last real countrymen and again I will link to a book I talk about a book called The Fringe of London which is key to this story Uh, hopefully we'll get to that tonight Um, and The Fringe of London writes about an encounter Uh, one of the reasons I found that book actually because he writes about an encounter with the last minstrel in the hills 
of High Wycombe, um, where I grew up. I grew up in a village near High Wycombe, and my dad grew up walking those hills, born in 1935, still out there walking. And the, the old man would, you know, he, he, as a kid, sounds like a joke, but, you know, as a kid, he went over the hills with a ferret. Ferreting was what you started doing as soon as you could. And then when you were, you know, old enough and you had some money, that, the ferret was augmented with a gun you had a folding t- two four you obviously what squares and landowners called poaching um the old man refuses to accept that word <laughs> i've never heard him use it in his life um and that's that was dad's relationship with with the land for his, his entire life yeah so i kind of entered into that world obviously so my, my earliest memories are going with my dad over over the fields him shooting something, me having to run and get it before the dog got it, and, um, and and picking up the dead animals and carrying them home, you know, in the sunset. So that's how I grew up. That's pretty, a, 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 quite a pastoral image. It's, you know what it is? You know what it is? I was, because I've got two kids now grown up, well, grown up, 18, 20. They're definitely not grown up. <laughs> <laughs> Far from grown Never up. Grow they up. are technically adults. Legally, adults, but in no other way they're growing up. Intellectually, they're surpassed me some years ago. But um, I was reading them, Danny Champion of the World by Royal Dahl, and I was like, oh, this has got this sounds like I recognize this. This is scriptures. I know these places. And, I, and, I, and my, I knew, I did know, to be fair, I knew that my dad had done the garden of a house at Coles Hill, Buckinghamshire. Uh, Royal Dahl fans will already have recognized that reference because Royal Dahl lived about three doors away. Wow. And so that that famous gardener that people dad knew him he was sort of one of dad's you know not a mate but you know he he knew him so that landscape was a landscape I grew up in and it, and you, so yeah sometimes you do talk about it and people go oh that sounds a bit poetic you go yeah because you've read the books by Enid Blyton lived in the next village so you know <laughs> that's the landscape that was written in those celebrated books but that was also the landscape I grew up in and that's the way we grew up. You know, our neighbour shouting, you go out at breakfast, he'd hand some rabbits over the fence that he just got on his morning walk. <laughs> and my nan would come and gut them in the sink whilst you're having your breakfast. Next, in like from here to the front row, no, nearer than here at the front row, nan would be there sk- skinning and gutting wow. rabbits. Yeah. So life in the angel must have seemed piece of pit, piece no, of, it was, it, quite yeah. easy compared to that. <laughs> I remember when someone pulled a knife on me once, so I went, <laughs> you went, that's not a knife, oh, this is a knife. Yes, yeah, past your bedtime. <laughs> And actually, it's interesting, I only recently worked, I say recently, about six or seven years ago, worked out that I didn't really have any references for walking in the woods and the fields in summer. Sounds mad, doesn't it? And because the reason was my dad was a mad cricketer. So from (laughs) April, end of April through to September, it was cricket. He played two games a week. He played every weekend till he was in his 50s and had a stroke. And his balance went a bit wobbly and he's focused on golf. <laughs> and I played golf with him instead. So every summer, for as long as I can remember, I was at cricket. So all my references of walking were all winter. So you get a very visceral, strong visceral, physical kind of sensation of walking in the landscape in winter, the mud, the skies, the amazing skies, the feeling of the cold biting your cheeks, all of that. It was beautiful. Um, and then the stories, because the hills are full of stories. You know, and the people are full of stories. And you've got the, A, you've got the basic stories of, you know, like things dad would remember from when he was a kid and when a hare had gone the first time. Well, it wasn't dad, I think it was, it might have been the old man actually, or one of his mates shot a hare. 
and and you know many of you will know the photo bit of her hair when you shoot her hair it sounds like a person they thought it was in the long grass they thought someone had been in the grass they thought they shot someone and it was a hair and because this is why you never shoot a hair and and in folklore it's believed that the souls of human beings are contained in hairs that's where your soul goes it goes into the body of a hair and so you never shoot a hair so that love of stories that i have and stories that come from the landscape and the characters the people definitely has its roots there for sure so when i came to london at the age of 18 it was just natural for me to explore this landscape actually around here you know the first place i lived was just off of uh, the romford road was just down sort of forest gate just outside stratford and um it it was and i went to city poly down at the down down at aldgate aldgate east i just used to walk home you know and and sort of take it all in or try and every to. every day that journey you know you would have seen different things i mean who, who goes out for walks at weekends and just looks at stuff i mean we'll probably come on to this concept of the chaos of the walk a walk it's not just to get to somewhere sometimes you know my wife and i we just go for what we say we'll just wander around yeah. and see what we come across and it's that kind of it's not planned it's not designed there might be a finishing point but everything in between you never know what you're going to come across no, that's right. Derive. Drift. Drift, I think Chance. that's... Happenstance. There's a great quote from... Another great quote from Ian Sinclair. It's not written... He, he should definitely write this down, but um, we were doing a walk in Tilbury and Ian had just published a book called Gold, The Gold Machine, which is actually about a journey in Peru. It's about a journey in the Amazonian rainforest. It's a, a family story, uh, Ian's family. and um, But the journey starts in Tilbury, because that's where his uh, great-great-grandfather, I think it is, set off on his journey to initially Sri Lanka and then to Peru. But it's also where Comrade set off on his journey. It becomes the novel Heart of Darkness. And so we are walking through Tilbury and really we want to walk, we go to the docks where the ships departed from. And then the next point Ian wanted to go to was at Stamford La Hope where Comrade lived. So in between that, we're just wandering really. And I'm making, inevitably making a video. Of course I'm making a video. <laughs> Would I do a walk without making a video? Yes, actually frequently I do. But we're, we're making the video and of course we, we walk straight past Tilbury Fort. Now I have covered Tilbury Fort in a podcast they used to make called Ventures and Adventures in Topography, highly relevant to uh, what we're talking about tonight. Um, and But in video form, uh, there's a few shots of it. There's not a whole video. So in my current guise, where that's inescapable, I have to say when the fort was built, why it was built, some sort of story, some sort of link. We want, But Ian's chatting about something else. I think we're talking about family stuff or the rugby, something like that. I'm in a state of panic because I realise we've passed the fort. The fort is now in, going into the background. We haven't covered it. And I, as we get past, I kind of say, Ian, oh, Ian, do you reckon we could... I need just to go back and do a bit on the, the fort. And he went, why? <laughs> I was like, well, because it's... Well, yeah, it's a good question, I suppose. Because uh, it's like... I don't know. I feel like we should talk about the fort. He goes, but it's not part of the story. The story is the docks and, and it's, it's Conrad's and it's my grandfather. Nothing, the fort's not in the story. Uh, you know, because Tilbury Fort is, you know, it's a famous, what, this, you could make a whole story about uh, Tilbury Fort. And he went, I went, well, that's, I guess that's true. But it's just, we can't just ignore the Tilbury Fort. And he went, no, no, but that's not this walk. The walk is the walk. The walk is what? Then that's not in this, that's not part of this walk. So that, to me, feels like a really interesting thing about what is psychogeography. It's not, and this was built in 1375 by X, Y, and Z and stuff. It's not about that. It's about it 
own sense of place and its relationship to its surroundings and your relationship to it. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you what I'll do, actually. Do you ever quote facts, like absolute kind of empirical facts about things? Well, I do it all the time. Yeah, I do it all the time. And I think think that's why I think we shouldn't be too dogged about these things. There's lots of reasons we shouldn't be dogged about it. A, because it's not fun, right? (laughs) For a start. (laughs) It's not. um, But also, if you want to get down to the minutiae of what is psychodrography and how is it used and what's the point of it almost in a way you know in its in its essence and i'll move on to i'll re, actually will read out in a minute the actual technical definition of it as when it was first formulated but the important thing to know is that the people who came up with the idea who came up with the developed the notion for a very specific purpose and and codified it that's the other important thing because I think lots of once we start talking about it, what it is, and I know we already are in a way, but already you go, well, that sounds like what I do. I kind of go out for a walk and I look at interesting stuff. Yeah, of course, people have been doing it forever, and also people have been writing about it forever as well. But it just wasn't called that, and it wasn't given a purpose necessarily. And that might, actually, that's contestable. It probably was given a purpose, but anyway, it was codified by a group of French. I was going to say pseudo-intellectuals. I think they actually are intellectuals. I think, I think Guy Debord counts as an intellectual. I think actually some of the others really do count as intellectuals. So a group of French intellectuals of the 1950s who at the time uh, initially went by the name of the Letterist International and then they changed their name to the Situationist International. But they noted in their definition, their def- oh, actually I will read it, this is very simple. Uh, the psychodrography as written, well, it was written by uh, Guy Debord, but really psychodrography and the derive which is the walking part of it was developed by a young man called uh ivan chechkloff well he wrote under the name of ivan chechkloff he his real name i think was gilles ivan and he was a poet so they weren't actually uh, i don't know if, i don't know i don't even really know what Guy Debord's discipline was but they weren't social scientists they certainly weren't scientists but he was a poet a lot, of, a lot of them were artists a lot of them were interested in architecture and urbanism um we'll talk more about that um but th- they defined it as the study of the precise laws and specific effects of the geographical environment, consciously organised or not, on the emotions and behaviour of individuals. It's really about how places make you feel, really. So how places make you feel. On the surface, so that's the, take that as a headline. And then within that, really what they were is why. Why do places make you feel that way? And, and I think there's a whole timeline which i try and give a party i try and maybe not give a party it's gonna be more interesting to unpack it really but today the, the terminology the term um hauntology has become quite popular because i think a lot of times and i've used it as well of course and a lot of times people get into that because they talk about you know the kind of the stories in the landscape the ghosts in the landscape and you know, people like ghost stories we like mysteries don't we and stuff like that so then when when people talk about um, places making you feel away sometimes they'll go oh that's a bit spooky that's a bit scary that and that is true and those things are interesting and they are relevant but i think really what the situationists were looking at was a critique of the built environment they were they were revolutionaries and indeed one of those early texts and again this is going to go into my terrible pronunciation uh by ralph vanijan i think it is there's definitely someone in this room who knows how to pronounce that word um but but anyway they wrote a book called the revolution of everyday life and that's really in its essence that's what the situationists were interested in they weren't really that interested in walking around so let's get that out of the way they weren't going on 20 mile rambles um 
the surrealists were and had done and they <laughs> probably were around in a circle exactly yeah yeah with wearing wacky clothing um and funny hats um and that's that's quite but that is relevant so the 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 situations were reacting to a couple of things they were reacting to surrealism as a failed artist movement and that surrealism had given birth to a form of architecture in the built environment. Modernists have been very interested in surrealism. And what the situationists saw was the failure of both of those ideas. They, they'd seen that surrealism had become kind of decadent and bourgeois. And in the, in, in the 1950s, post-war Europe, you know, the echoes of fascism were still there as well. You know, collaborationists were in government. Fascists were still in government uh, around, around Europe. And they were, as young radicals, they were looking, this is just nonsense. This world that's been built around or being rebuilt is being built to oppress people you know this architecture is not built to liberate the human spirit but to contain it and capture it and suppress it so how do you formulate a critique of that and psychogeography was one of the tools they used to formulate a critique of initially the built environment but also the idea that you, you should be free the human spirit should be free you should be able to reach your ultimate potential as a human being and the built environment shouldn't act contain and suppress that and the other layer would be on behalf of capital because the why why would they do it well they're doing it because they want to maximize your economic potential and this is the through line really from where they were writing in the 50s to the modern day and the ultimate articulation of that being the shopping mall you know which is designed to maximize what they can get out of you When people ask me about psychogeography, they think about Ian Sinclair walking around the M25, which actually is deeply, deeply psychogeographical sort of expression. Or they think about my kind of slight, almost slightly wistful walks in this other London. Really, psycho, the, the situationists were critiquing architecture. They were critiquing the built environment. They were really interested in urbanism. One of the first books was called A Formulary of a New Urbanism. So a lot of their early tri- texts and treaties were about roads. They were interested in roads. But they were also looking uh, uh, Paris, which had been rebuilt. I think I don't know enough about Paris to know about this, but you know, Les Halles was an area. I think it had been an area with higgledy piggledy streets and a lot of character. It was called completely flattened, and then built this kind of very modern development. And now you can see how it leads into my book, Welcome to New London, where you see this happening again. And of course, even the romantic Paris that we love with its beautiful straight boulevards. I mean, that was done so Napoleon could move his troops around Paris a lot quicker, right? They didn't like the higgledy-piggledy streets. The Paris Commune, which had nearly kind of brought down the, the French establishment of the day. But then... In an interesting kind of echo of that, in 68, these kind of quite louche, there's a funny story about them as well, kind of louche, slightly ineffectual French intellectuals who spent apparently a lot of time just sitting around listening to bad jazz, smoking <laughs> gourwas and drinking red wine. Um, oh, those they, are the days. They beca- <laughs> I've just described your teenage years. Um, they became the key kind of key players in the, the events of May 68, the revolutions of May 68 in Paris, which nearly brought down the French government. And de Boer was a central figure in that. I, I, on my YouTube channel, there you go. Got a, I got a, a friend of mine um, who grew up in Paris, he's, he's French and he grew up in Paris, and it was a very uh, precocious uh, intellectual young kid. I mean, he's a professor now at uh, the Australian National University. Uh, Matthew O'Neill and Matthew has got an amazing library of situationist texts at a time this would have been in sort of like the early 80s late 70s early 80s when these books were still in circulation in their original form and there were a couple of bookshops 
and he the, the work run by the publishers who published and Matthew collected this amazing library and one of their publications is a list <laughs> a list of every member of the Situationist International and it has just their name the date they joined and then the date they were expelled. Because <laughs> they were famous for expelling people. And the only person, I'm, I'm leading this back, the only person to not been expelled, I think this is true, is, um, is the wonderful Char- is Christopher Gray. I was going to say Charles Gray. Christopher Gray. Oh, no, not Christopher Gray. Christopher Gray was expelled. Charles Radcliffe. Charles Radcliffe, I think, is the only person not to have been expelled. Did Guy Debord expel himself? I don't know if he did. He expelled out all of his mates. And um, Chris Gray and Charles Radcliffe had somehow heard about the Situationists. They were public school boys, I think, or they were sort of very young men. I think they were public school. And um, they were about 17 years old. And, they, and Chris Gray thought, this sounds cool. Let's go to Paris and join the Situationists. I think they must have written to De Boer. Some There must be some communication. And they absconded and went to Paris as young men and met and met them and this is where that description of they sat around just drinking red wine smoking and listening to bad music and at the time like gray and radcliffe were like they were like getting into this is early kind of rock and roll you know well late rock and roll sort of when rock and roll is becoming a bit more mutated i think people had discovered hallucinogenics hallucinogenics have been around forever haven't they like the, anyway forget about <laughs> that the bible isn't that all about people tripping anyway um that's cogent that's not anyway that's a a huge tangent in the nature of psychogeography so they go to paris and they meet de boer and the situationists and charles radcliffe did the uh, annual chris gray memorial lecture at houseman's bookshop who have a wonderful psychogeography collection and um they were quite disappointed actually um charles radcliffe was quite disappointed with them he thought they were already sexist as well the women were serving the men their drinks and sort of combing de boer's hair and they're all like in of in their 30s and these oh, we want to just get smashed and go out and cause some trouble you know or go out and have fun and uh the situationists were like oh, what do you mean this is terrible let's listen to some more bad jazz and smoke some more <laughs> of us so they um so radcliffe quit uh and so he's the only person in this list There's a, it's a book by the way of these people and radcliffe that resigned <laughs> only, only the only one to resign but the important thing there is chris gray came back from paris and translated the writings of the Situationist International into English for the first time. And for a very long time, well, a very long time, I guess he did that in the, I don't sure what the date is, but he wrote a book called Leaving the 20th Century. And that is where most people that got into psychogeography in the United Kingdom after that, I guess that would have been in the 70s, encountered it. And as people have pointed out, they're quite bad translations. <laughs> so a lot of people that picked up the, the idea of psychogeography did so, not from its original French, but from the bad translations of Chris Gray. It's not me. I don't speak any French. So I've heard people say that. And now, obviously, you get really good academic translations of those texts. Two of the people who picked up on this writing when they were at art school were Malcolm McLaren and Jamie Reid. And it's and it's the the, the situationist mindset because you had the idea of psychogeography derive a certain type of behaviour, but then you had an idea of changing culture, detournement. So you take cultural product, adverts, movies, magazines, and you chop it up and you rearrange it to say something about that culture. Because they were sort of disgusted by modern consumer culture. This is even in like the sixties, but they they were mainlining 
the, the the French the situation is national and they 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 create punk effectively they create the aesthetic of punk from from the writings of De Boer and the others the artwork of the Sex Pistols and all that is if you look back at what the situationists were doing their artwork their maps their cut up maps are directly referencing I mean McLaren made. Um, a TV documentary called uh, "The Ghosts of Oxford Street," which is about the psychogeography of central London, about the you know the the energy of St Giles, you know, with the with the leper hospital and the plague pits and all of that stuff, and uh, and Gin Alley. Um, so McLaren was very consciously referencing it, um, and to bring us up to, to Ian Sinclair at the same time, I think this is really interesting around the same time I think that Chris Gray's book is um, published Ian Sinclair has, a, has an exhibition with the with the, um, the sculptor Brian Catlin in 1974 at the Whitechapel Gallery called Albion Island Vortex which is recently restaged at the Swedenborg, the Swedenborg house Swedenborg was a direct influence on Blake, Blake was a follower of Swedenborg but Swedenborg used to um, attend a church where Blake's mother attended. We don't know who Blake's father is, where Blake's mother attended and where they practiced free love. Therefore, wow. <laughs> we're going to claim Swedenborg <laughs> is Blake's dad. Um, but so anyway, it all goes it all goes around in circles. Anyway, in that show, Ian, uh, who I don't think at that point was necessarily aware of psychogeography, but he, in this show, it was just that. I mean, he, the the statement that they presented to the Whitechapel Gallery who gave them room. Ian was working in the Ullage Cellars at Truman's Breweries, mopping out the Ullage Cellars with Brian Catlin, writing poetry and writing about, you know, writing about ley lines and, and psychic energy and connecting Hawksmoor churches. And, but they were hippies. I mean, I don't think Ian would resent me saying that. They were hippies. And um, they had an exhibition where they talked about the East End of London. They talked about Hawksmoor churches. They talked about standing stones. They talked about ley lines and energy and the coastline, the Welsh coast, and archaeological discoveries. And all this stuff is all in one place. And a lot of it's just photographs and notes from walks or art found objects put in cases. And in a way, that is what of people now in the UK often think of as psychogeography. And you could say it is because they've made it that. Yeah. But they they were not writing critiques at that point of, of modernist architecture like the situation. So they weren't trying to overthrow the government at all. Whereas the situationists did want to overthrow the government. They wanted to change the way we lived our lives. The kind of like hippies and like Will Self, who had a column in the Independent called Psychodrography, wasn't trying to overthrow the government. You know, they weren't they weren't revolutionaries. They're kind of liberals in a lot of ways. So but that's the thing it's vague and it's fluid and you can make it what you want but that that description is probably the best one that i've heard is is that it's kind of it's it's that punk mentality of just like it's not the facts and figures it's not anything it's what you want your relationship to be with what's around you that you might see every day and that that is probably the clearest expression. So if anyone ever asks me in the future, what is it? That's what they will probably get. Because yeah. it's, it's, it kind of makes sense. Yeah. It well, also, if you look at what Ian and Brian, they were living in a communal house in Hackney at the time when a lot of Hackney was depopulated at that point, you know, because there were still bomb sites in Hackney and they were living in a kind of ruined old house. So they were actually, in a lot of ways, challenging the status quo. And they weren't, they, you know, they were well-educated young men and yet they were doing casual labouring. Ian was working at the railway yards in Stratford. They were writing poetry. They were self-publishing. 
um you know they were living they were they checked out of contemporary they weren't following like ian's dad was a doctor and so ian definitely wasn't following that that path and they were writing experimental poetry they weren't engaging in the kind of commercial mainstream they weren't interested in it in any way i don't think at all and um so you could see that attitude was still there but where it really I think a really interesting moment for me where it sort of really coalesces into the thing that probably leads you to ask me the question in a way is that in the in the early 90s you get um you get the psycho what's called the psychogeographical revival it's called by about four people i mean that's the reality <laughs> I was gonna say, well, how popular was it in when you know people are doing this in the, the kind of the 70s and 80s well here's a really interesting thing i mean i could just i can condense the history into an anecdote actually ian has written i'm pretty sure it's in a book ian's written that he got the idea from stuart home and stuart as he i think it's in uh, lights out for the territory stuart holmes london psychogeographical association newsletters which ian got from compendium books in camden and um and I remember at the at the um, at the Chris Gray Memorial Lecture, I saw Stuart Home there, and he was like, "Oh no, sorry, Stuart Home." I talked to him, uh, and I had a film, London Prambula, uh, which we talk about this idea. So I've got Ian and Will Self and all these people on camera talking about psychogeography, and. Um, and Nick Papadimitro, who was being associated with him, Nick doesn't even, he refuses to acknowledge the term. He had his own thing called deep topography. And when Nick first said that on a, to my camcorder in 2005, and I put it on YouTube when YouTube started in 2006. Obviously, it didn't exist. Now there's conferences, there's academic conferences <laughs> about, about deep, deep. Nick's never been invited to one deep topography conference. <laughs> he literally invented the term on the spot. He's never once, no one's even, it's mad, isn't it? But it's beautiful to see how these things happen. Um, I love, oh yeah, anyway. Uh, <laughs> it's funny. So I'd said to, to Ian, anyway, Ian had written this and I said to him, he goes, Yeah, I got it from Stuart Home and his like London Psychogeographical Association newsletters. I said to Stuart about it. He went, I wish he'd stop saying that. I didn't write them. He said, I wrote for them. He said, it's a guy called Fabian. I said, well, who did it? He goes, a guy called Fabian Tomset. Fabian Tomset did them. So I saw Fabian Tomset at this, uh, at this Charles Radcliffe, uh, you know, Chris Gray Memorial Lecture delivered by Charles Radcliffe. That is on YouTube. Highly recommend um, watching that if you're interested in this subject. It's really interesting on a number of levels, early acid industry and all that business that they got into. But um, so I said to Fabian, I said, is it true that you wrote the psycho you know the lpa newsletters you're responsible for all of this and he just smiled you know and that's that playfulness he didn't want to destroy the narrative he's like no let's keep it i like that story <laughs> yeah. it's good and stuart's like wasn't me it wasn't me and so they 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 published they revived the london psychogeographical association which had been started by a guy called ralph rumney who was the first British member of the Situation International, expelled really quickly. I think he lasted about two weeks. Yeah, he was in and out, bang, out. So he comes back to London, starts this thing called the London Psychogeographical Association. I don't think it ever gets off the ground. Good story about Ralph Rumley in a minute, actually. And um, so then so then Fabian Thompson, Stuart Home, they published this newsletter in, in, in I think it's 1993. I think I, I love this um, opening line of it. It's like... Um, there, there's, there's a spectre haunting Europe, nay the world, the spectre of psychogeography, referencing Marx, obviously, there. And so they, re, they, they reboot it in 93. And at that time, for me, you have, a, you have a kind of confluence of things all happening. They reboot the London Psychogeographical Association. According to Ian's own narrative, he first picks that up. Um, he picks up a newsletter, one of these newsletters, sold at Compendium Books, 
puts it in lights out for the territory, thinks that's a good term, I'll have that. Bang, goes in there. He comes associated with it. In 93, you've, well, Patrick Keeler is editing his film London. Now, Patrick Keeler is also another name that would be associated with, and London is a really deeply psychogeographic film. But in the film, really the, um, the, the central character is a flaneur and really is very concerned or really interested in the surrealists and um, Walter Benjamin and the work of Walter Benjamin. And, of course, the surrealists were the original sort of inspiration for the situationists because they were very they were into them and they were very disappointed with them because they, they saw them becoming sort of decadent and bourgeois and didn't really ever do anything uh, apart from going very long walks <laughs> which they did do very <laughs> which they did do very very well so um keeler but Ke- patrick keeler is a filmmaker a brilliant filmmaker but he studied architecture and his filmmaking came from taking photographs of buildings so he was directly very sort of aware of the architectural critiques of the situationists. At the same time, as well, you have on a pop, you have Saint Etienne. I'm the only person to make this li- <laughs> to insist on making this link persistently for the last twenty years. Um, but at the same time, Saint Etienne released their album "So Tough," which is all about London, all about calves, greasy spoon calves, tube stations, um, markets, record shops, all that kind of stuff. Well, the significance there is Bob Stanley yeah. uh, is a big fan of London, big, big fan of Ian well, how, how we Is it How We Used to Live? How We Used to Live. The great they, Bob well, Stanley They made a film called, called Finisterre with Paul, the brilliant director Paul Kelly. And Finisterre is another film about London. They make um, What Have You Done Today, Mervyn Day, about the Olympic Park before it was the Olympic Park, the area. They, they film on the day it's announced that London has won the Olympic bid. Um, so it all kind of feeds back through. So this sort of neo-psychogeographic... And of course, you have the dying days of that Tory government. The Tories have accidentally won the 92 election. They don't know what to do. They get, they get elected. The first thing that happens is they are let off a massive bomb. The Bishopsgate bomb blows the heart out of the city of London. That's a really big deal. There was also a massive bomb at the Baltic Exchange. But it's... So th- that year, sort of 92, 93... Was the was kind of like the perfect storm, really, for the, the the preconditions to bring together all these all these elements, and that again, it's what we it's what is known as four people refers refers to that as neo psychogeography, and so then you get the kind of the marrying then of the kind of intellectual French, but the critique of architecture, the kind of wanting to overthrow the existing order in the way of life because we had Black Wednesday, you had IRA bombs, it felt like the city was dying london's population was 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 still on its downward decline um and but then the kind of hippie woo woo stuff kind of like ley lines mysteries earth mysteries that very british benign thing which had been around forever also made sense and transposing that those things into a built environment which the lpa did in their newsletters you know overlaying I mean, it's just stuff you make up, really. But wasn't that just to try and kind of give it a human sense? Because, as you say, everything was yeah. falling apart. It was just, you know, it was money, it was greed, it was building, it was expansion, it was concrete, it was glass. So, therefore, you have this sense of the human side. I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think there was, and also, again, stories, people like stories, and there's stories in the landscape, going back to my sort of childhood element of this. And I think it all makes sense. There's no reason why it's not why it's not valid. I think it's why, it's why I'm quite keen to sort of tell the narrative in that way, even though I rip it all up in my own work. Personally, on a, on a personal level, this is a good, good opportunity for me to kind of, I guess, in a way, kind of articulate it because, you know, I, I make mistakes in my work 
Um, no, I don't always deliberately make mistakes. I guess in a way I leave mistakes in. So that thing in an edit, like, you know, like anything that's digital can be cut, right? It's, I mean, obviously when it's tape, it could, but non-destructive media like like digital media, you could do anything you like with it. So when I make a mistake in a video, and people, oh, I doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, obviously I could retake that. <laughs> do obviously, you get- obviously I could look it up on Wikipedia <laughs> or I could look it up in the notes that I carry around with me but never read. Obviously I could put it in the screen, I could do it in voice. If it's in, it's not live. I've left it in for a reason. And part of the reason is to show the reality of this engagement. If you're too carried away in what you're doing, I mean, it is no fun to walk around the streets reading Wikipedia. I mean, trust me, I've done it. Um, you know, it's the it's point. And that's in a way why, um, why I don't like guided walks. Come to my series of guided walks that are coming soon. But that's why, in a way, the guided walk for me is a kind of antithetical experience. The guided walk should be, there you go, it's that way. Well, it should in the be. Pub at the One end. of your guided walks, John, yeah. should literally be just come with me, but I'm not going to say a mm. word. Yeah, that doesn't happen. <laughs> because I want yeah. you to experience it for yourself. That, it yes. doesn't even happen when I'm on my own. <laughs> I'm literally talking the whole time. But yeah, in, but in a way, that's, in a, that, that's why in a, the, sort of the local history walk is, can't be psychogeographical because you're telling people about it. People like that stuff, and I like it as well. It is interesting. It enriches your experience of it, having a bit of information. But hopefully, in a way, that's why, you know, and it really triggers some people. Like, well, I believe this. What do you mean you believe it? Just tell us. It's like, well, I can't, because if I did that, I'd have to tell you all the kind of counter-arguments for why other people disagree with that historical timeline or that historical interpretation. So it's better for me just to come and go, I think this. Because the reality is, you know, like I usually walk around with a copy of London Archaeologist in my bag. You know, all the footnotes in there, the counter-narratives. You know, one, the Roman wall, for example, if you went to the London Psychogeographical, sorry, the London Archaeological Society archives, the amount of articles just about the Roman Wall of London, because everyone's reinterpreting it and reimagining and finding new bits. The Civil War defences, there's loads of narratives on London's uh, Civil War defences, you know, and what they mean, and, and you know, what, where they were for a start, how they were built for a second, but then what they mean. What, you know, w- w- was this a kind of utopian enclosure? Was this a great moment of democracy? Local history is a resource, I think, and I have great, I have enormous admiration for archaeologists and historians. The people have to do the really tedious stuff, where they have to have all the footnotes and the caveats. You know, when I've done walks with, uh, his, you know, academics, so, uh, um, the brilliant Kate Spencer, the, old, the prof. <laughs> Yes, the Prof. Kate Spencer, who you know, I went to, again was at City Poly. Uh, was at City Poly with Kate Spencer uh, when we were just mere undergraduates before she was a, a very esteemed academic. And when you say Kate, Kate, what's that over there? And she's last to kind of go. Well, look, see, the one belief is that you know, because that's her job. You know, and that's what Monster is very impatient about. That actually, it's very impatient. She deals in facts. She deals in facts, but she understands that facts are contestable. Yeah. Fact, facts, you know, there's, there's, for every fact, someone's going to... Also, you know, her facts are peer-reviewed by a lot of people. <laughs> They're thoroughly tested over a long period of time. You know, what if you fair to say psychogeography cannot be peer-reviewed? <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. Well, it was a situation did, and they kicked people out. And that was why uh, Ralph Rumley was kicked out, because his, his work wasn't considered psychogeographical enough. Should I tell you my funny, Ralph, very psychogeographical Ralph Rumley story? 
But, um, many years ago, uh, you know, like 2008, I think this was, um, when I had a job where they would send me to LA every now and again. And so I was being picked up by an Addison Lee because they didn't trust me to get to the airport, I think. So they're going, well, I'm going to get an Addison and there'll be someone at the other end. And that way we know you'll reach your destination. So this guy was picking me up in the Addison Lee at like four in the morning. So you don't want to talk, you know. And I was like, oh. And uh, he was insisting on talking. And I was like, oh, this is, I, I can't. I can't do this, I don't think. And he was chatting away. And um, he said, uh, you know, where you go, you know, what, where you going, what you're doing. Um, you doing? Uh, I thought, wow, God, so I, have to, I don't really want to tell him I was going to LA, you know, to work. I can't remember what I was working on, some comedy, I think. And um, I thought, that's not a conversation I particularly want to have because he might, he might be interested in that. Um, so I thought at the same time I was making the London Perambulator I'd started making the London Perambulator about my dear friend Nick Pabazimitro who walks around northwest London like and Nick when what Nick would say about all of what I've said is what I haven't mentioned is natural history and Nick is really interested in natural history really interested in plants and insects uh, and he writes about that a lot so um, and and things like sewage systems and you know infrastructure power grids and stuff so I, um, so I thought I'd tell him about that instead because that will close the conversation down pretty <laughs> fucking quick. Yeah, that will close the conversation down pretty quick. So um, I, I, so I said, oh yeah, well, I'm making this this documentary about the built environment. Blah blah. I told him, and he went, oh, that sounds a bit like psychogeography. And I went, <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> He goes, this sounds, uh, yeah, so I, I said, well, uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, is that something you're interested in? He goes, well, Ralph Rumney was his landlord. <laughs> when he was a student, Ralph Rumney had been his landlord. So, John, where did the idea of the books come from? You see, you've gone from publishing a little, pa- you know, it, stuff that no one's really reading, it's going, and then the book, because I, I would love to write a book. I'm sure everyone would love to write a book. Everyone's got at least one book in them. You've got two. So the book. Hopefully I've got more than two books in me because I've published two. (laughs) (laughs) Hope that's not it. Um, So really the idea for the book, um, the first book, This Other London, Adventures in the Overlooked City, really was very straightforward, was that in my exploration of the culture around walking and the literature around walking, so we talked about psychogeography, Ian Sinclair, massive inspiration on me, loved it the minute I first picked up Ian. I went looking for Ian, really, because I wanted to find some sort of English beat or British, because Ian's Welsh, some sort of British beatnik writing, a bit like Kerouac and the writing of the beats. And, of course, Ian's directly linked to that. Um, Ian's first publication was about uh, with um, about Allen Ginsberg, you know, in 68. Um, Kodak Mantra Diaries and so um, Ian's prose was the perfect way to kind of open up writing about place and landscape but through at that same time I came across a kind of tradition of writing that existed in the early 20s primarily early part of the 20th century um, topographical writing and writers that were going out in some cases into the countryside, but a lot of times into the new suburbs that were growing up around London with the expansion of London, the railway suburbs. And they were looking at this new terrain and exploring it as a new land, really. And um, there's a wonderful uh, quote um, 
from a book called The Outer Circle, Rambles in Remote London, which is one of my... It's one of the best titles for a book ever. I wanted to call this other London Remote London, and the publisher went, that sounds a bit depressing. <laughs> uh, I thought, Does that mean you don't like it? Um, and he said... Uh, he said uh, he decided. I decided that these little towns must be celebrated. I would lock up, gather toothbrush, comb and razor and revisit them and make a grand tour of the true heart of London. And that was off the back of telling an anecdote about how he accidentally ended up in Sherrick Green on a bus. Does anyone know where Sherrick Green is? Well, you, yeah, it's not on the map anymore. There is a street called Sherrick Green Road, which is in Dollis Hill, near Dollis Hill Library. But that's it. That's um, and it was a, it was a, you know, it, and so that's writing in the nineteen twenties. So really, what I wanted to do was update that tradition, and I've been writing about this for a while. It was in that I was in a project I did, a psych, my first psychogeography project, two thousand and four, funded by the Arts Council, remapping the town of my birth, remapping High Wycombe with my sister, who was a public artist. And that was my funding that was for engagement in the built environment, and I used these books as a great source because High Wycombe turns up in a lot of books in the early 20th century. You won't find it in any after that. Um, but you found it a lot in the early 20th century because it was considered as the gateway to the Chilterns. It was at the end of the, the, the railway line from Marylebone and you could go there and explore the Chilterns. So loads of these old ramble books wrote about Wickham, but they wrote about High Wickham not as this kind of industrial town, but they wrote about it as it being at the nexus of a, of a, a kind of network of Neolithic trackways which is quite a kind of wow you know i grew up there and i loved it and it had a great music scene but then it's also at the heart of a nexus of these neolithic trackways which kind of blew my mind so i went around the back of the job center looking for neolithic trackways <laughs> you know and i found middens of super strength lager cans there that have been left by <laughs> travelers on the on the way so um and so that that, that project um it, became a little a very little publication of a little pamphlet that I had to give to the arts council to justify the thousands of pounds they'd given us. <laughs> got that little pamphlet they got a little pamphlet from it and a little So did you sell many of those or was it given they away? They were given away, it yeah. There was a hundred that were given away to stakeholders, yeah. Wow. Um, and there was a book that you can download for free from um Lulu. Uh, I think it's called yeah. So um you could, if you go on my blog you'll find it so it was a blog so we started a blog and i started um uploading internet videos from that so it was all very digital and it made sense to share things digitally also because we were this is 2004 digital was a really good way to engage people to get you know because you want to include people in it you know even though we were we formed the desperate hundred psychogeographical society uh, <laughs> there's an awful great. lot of societies yeah yeah we like that idea and we were leaving cards on tables in like you know little woods department store at a cafe and we'd leave the calling cards there and we made newsletters in tribute to the london psychogeographical association so Whilst good. listening to bad jazz and smoking cool no we were listening to the hypnotics who were a wickham <laughs> psych psych punk band and um yeah i cut old archive footage of wickham furniture factories going up in flames because they were full of varnish they just explode all the time Wickham was always going up in flames it does link back to punk the uh, the guy who ran the music venue in Wickham the Nags Head was one of the first managers of the Sex Pistols and he also invented the Twix mad isn't it <laughs> he was a marketing officer at Mars and he came up with a, we need something to do with this chocolate bar why don't we shove a biscuit in a Mars bar and chop it in down the middle imagine the That's meeting the is going now should we do one two three oh, four's a Kit Kat <laughs> Yeah, one's a Mars bar. Well, let's do two. Just chop it down two. the middle. Shove a biscuit in it and chop it down the middle. Um, so I've been publishing so little bits and bobs, yeah. And but what I really wanted to do it was a very simple pitch in a way is that this tradition of writing had existed of exploring the outer London suburbs, 
in the twenties, a period of change in London's history. And I just wanted, I thought it was a tradition that should be revived. It just died off with the war. And I thought, oh, now's a good time to reboot it. So it was really simple. And actually in some of the early ideas um, was literally to redo the fringe of London by Gordon S. Maxwell. I thought, well, why not? Why not just do an updated version of them or just do a compilation of them? So lots of ideas were sort of kicked around. And then I just thought, no, I'd like to just revisit their landscapes and, and, and write about it. And I, I'd, 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 I'd accidentally, I didn't pitch it to HarperCollins. I, I had ghost written the introduction to 2012's best-selling cookery book. Obviously, there is a link there, surely. There is no link. There is no <laughs> link. I, I had, well, I'd obviously badly ghostwritten it in a way because the, the head of nonfiction had spotted it was me and went, thanks. I was like, hang on, how do you know I did that? Psychogeographical cooking. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I, I was working for the agent of a, of a TV chef and... Um, yeah, and and the introduction. Wasn't, it seemed a good idea at the time. Yeah, well, the introduction wasn't being written, <laughs> <laughs> and I knew the publishers, and so I said, "Look, do you want me to help?" And so the, the TV chef went, "Yeah, do you reckon you could just do it?" <laughs> I went, "Well, what's the book called? What's in it?" And I didn't know, so I just well, make something up. Let's just make a thing up. So I made a thing up and wrote it and sent it off, and it got published. The book, I say, it was the best-selling cookbook of that year. It's a very good cookbook, actually. Um, and then, obviously you're not going to tell us who it was nah no nah. you can't because that's like breaking the rules isn't it you're not exactly. allowed to say that exactly. i don't think they're still i don't think they're doing stuff but they were they had a tv show they were very good on tv and i worked on their christmas tv show writing trying to write some jokes for the links it was quite it was good fun <laughs> that was that was one that no i can't say that actually i was gonna say something i can't say it but um, but your first book is probably now gone into what the 10th reprint how does it feel to to, to have written a book that has come out of this kind of this tradition that people are now looking at and going, oh, this is my starting point. This is my, I'm going to take your book and I'm going to f- follow some of those journeys you've done and learn and have their own kind of journey from that. That's quite, that's quite an amazing thing to have done. Thank you. Thank you. I don't- I mean, everyone has read your book. I mean, to have said, you know, 10 years ago, I'm going to, I'm going to do this job, write this, write this book, where I'm just going to travel around, I'm just going to look at stuff and talk about stuff. It's now been reprinted 10 times. Yeah. It's still selling, you know, it's still selling. It's, and so many people know your book. Wow. They know this other London. And, it, it, you know, that's to be now part of that kind of literary heritage of London. But to have been instrumental in helping people start their own journeys is fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I think, I think the only thing, well, the first thing I do is I don't tend to think of it that way. I think people talk about this a lot, but it's really true. I think the only way to approach it is with humility, really. But I think that's that, that's what I was saying, isn't it? You know, we'll have a lot to be humble about, you know. Um, and I think, but I, I think that's really integral, particularly. But I think a practice like this, if you're going around street walking, that sounds bad, doesn't it? If you're going around walking around, <laughs> walking the streets, yeah, equally walking as bad. street, street yes. walking, uh, walking around industrial estates. And, I mean, I don't think you can get too far up yourself. Uh, it's really good being married to an Aussie as well. Um, yeah. So you can't get too carried away with it. And or should you unless you're in Sinclair and you write like Ian writes then you definitely <laughs> should but I think um it's a look I, I, my attitude in a way you know this other London was published by HarperCollins and it's you know it's very much I guess in that sense part of a big publishing machine but I think the the you know I'm very much everything I've done has come out of really a lot of ways digital you know in terms of the publishing side of it or whatever you want to call it I don't even really know media 
Um, and that's really a conversation. You know, when I started a blog when I was on paternity leave, 2003, I know, you know, it's about the comments that you get. You know, it's, it's, it's an ongoing, and someone leaves a comment and they suggest something, then you go out and check it out. It's an ongoing thing. So you can't get, you can't elevate yourself too high because also, like, the people who comment on my stuff, a lot of them are really knowledgeable people. They are really, really, like, top of their game, um, which is amazing. And I'm always really flattered that they engage with it. And that, that happened really early on when I was writing about some buildings in Grazing Road. And I was just really curious. And they all seem to be named after places in North Devon. So I thought I'll do self-consciously, you know, knowingly do the, the, the hackneyed psychogeographical thing and seeing if the alignment of the places in Devon matches the alignment of the building on grazing road which obviously was a bit of a joke and then in the comments pretty much straight away um someone um joined you know jumped in and left a comment from the survey of london you know who actually studied these things and left a really beautiful biography of the architect who or not the architect the developer who built the buildings who was from north devon and was an orphan um impoverished and came to london as an impoverished child and made their fortune but um built homes for working class people so that kids like him wouldn't be homeless and named them after the places of their childhood but isn't that what it's what it's all about is it's that formulation of more knowledge of people's not about the actual nuts and bolts of the building but about people's relationship with it and the number of people who've come up to me and said oh i read that bit in john's book about uh, stanley kubik when he came to beckton and they go well, i've got a poster or i've got I, I know someone who's got a palm tree in their garden and you just think yeah. oh everyone's got photos like beckton alps everyone's got photos of beckton alps and it is just your book has kind of helped people kind of say yeah we can talk about this and we can th- add into the the pot of communal knowledge about these things around us which is fantastic. Yeah, I think it's the, I think the thing I was really keen to do was to demystify the idea of psychogeography, and I think it was I think it was consciously dressed up as a kind of hermetic thing. I've even me calling it a hermetic thing. I'm aware is slightly hermetic, um, <laughs> but the first London Psychogeographical Association newsletter does say that that they're gonna. I, I can't even pronounce the form of philosophy they say they're going to use. Ecludian, Ecludian, Ecludian. Someone in here definitely knows how to pronounce that. And I think that's where I think the, a massive benefit to me was having a pretty poor education, schooling. You know, I went to a really crappy secondary school, and. Um, and you know, failed my twelve plus, which was devastating. And you know, everyone's ah, oh, he's going to pass, and go. I didn't, you know, like failed. And my cousin who lived around the corner in the same council estate, you know, went to Oxford and did PPE with David Cameron. So I can't blame the environment. <laughs> <laughs> so I think having that thing of being overly aware of my own ignorance but thirst for learning wasn't satisfied at school um and i I thought i'm gonna have to do this myself like you know well as a 12 year old 13 year old going oh i've got to school you know for the first year i'm gonna have to i can't rely on this lot to do it for me (laughs) um i'm gonna have to learn so i think i think on the one hand being really keen to learn and being really respectful of education and being really respectful of of thorough scaffolding of knowledge um but not having it and and so respecting on the one hand and then going oh i want to i want to acquire all of that but on the other hand i know what it's like to not know what people are saying but you've acquired it but you've not you've not had it kind of and then this happened, and then this happened, and there's yeah. so much of our history that we learned at school is just like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. Yeah. 
But you know that's... I think instinctively, as a kid even, you know that's not true. Obviously, if you do a modicum of historical reading, you suddenly go, okay, things are a bit messier than we first thought. Um, But... You also, you know, stories don't go that things just don't go that way, do they? They don't go that way in your own environment. And I love that idea as well. I can't remember who wrote it recently. They went, Do you seriously think that everyone just stopped using bronze and started using iron? <laughs> <laughs> That's next month. No, the Bronze podcast. Age ended yeah. last Tuesday, today. Now is everything's iron. <laughs> But it seems very much that psychogeography is pretty much the sole preserve of men. Um, I imagine that women's experience is very different. They're going to feel unsafe in places that men won't and have less freedom to move around. They're going to interact with their environment very differently. Um, Are there any women psychogeographers I should know about and find out more about? I mean, Rachel Lichtenstein is a great example. um, And there's lots of different work that Rachel's... uh, created um one of the if you want a compendium of psychogeographic writing it was edited by an academic called tina richardson dr tina richardson who um laura oldfield ford um used to publish a zine called savage messiah and i think i mean laura again is a legit gallery artist so she's like a proper you know and she works at a university but she also started online around the same time as me publishing stuff online on myspace she used to write also a physical zine called savage savage messiah as well but there's tons and what i think is really interesting as well because i think hopefully in some ways we have set the ground that you know psychogeography really in its modern form that the reason that we're sat here and there's i don't know how many people are here tonight 50 60 people and have many listen online is because it's just like walking really there's a lot of you can read psychogeography into a lot of things and if you look at if you look at walking in media so like if you look at the radio it's pretty much exclusively presented by female presenters on the radio claire balding for example is one and on tv nearly all the presenters who do walking shows are are female as well so loads of women are engaged in psychogeographical activity or walking activity as well um and but you're right. One thing I'm very keen, and this goes across the board actually, is to recognise my you know my privileges that I that I'm grateful for for a start. And you're right. A lot of people don't want to don't feel don't walk around industrial states taking photographs because they don't feel safe doing it. And I'm I have been really blasé about that and going. Hey, it's perfectly safe. You're safer here than you are anywhere. But it's like it's how you feel. And you're right. That is I am very lucky to to, to be able to do that. It's really interesting that Rachel Lichtenstein, um, she runs the Centre for Place Writing at Manchester Metropolitan University, or as I used to call it when I was there, Manchester Poly. Um, (laughs) And that's part of, I think it's either the degree or the MA course. Um, Ian, he's a visiting lecturer. Have you been asked to do it yet, John? No, I haven't. There you go. Indignant, that was. That was indignant. Well, I think, no, if if you get the chance to read Rachel's book, um, Estuary, Rachel was here... God, it must have been about six years ago. In conversation with me. She was, wasn't she? Yeah. Right. Gosh, you've been in conversation with everyone here. But it was brilliant because she went down the, the last, the bit of the Thames Estuary and she recorded the last kind of proper Estuary Fisherman. And it was, it's yeah. fantastic, but it's a beautiful book as well. Well, also, Rudinsky's Room is an amazing book about the, um, it, it's, it's, an, it's an amazing psychogeographical story. And it's um, about the Princelet Street Synagogue in, you know, in, uh, spitalfields that was left abandoned for ages but when people went in there to 
kind of, I don't know, is, is anybody still here? The caretaker, the former caretaker, David Radinsky, disappeared. But in his room, they found this annotated A to Z. And from that, they were trying to find out where, where he was. And, that's, that's, and that was in collaboration with Ian. Um, but that's a wonderful project. And, and Rachel also did a fantastic project um, about Hatton Garden called Diamond Street. She wrote a book about Brick Lane. So she's done these very detailed studies of, of places, of just singular places rather than the whole of London or you know, the whole of the M25. She's sort of done these very focused studies. And obviously, Princelet Street is next to Ottolenghi's restaurant, which just kind of sums up Spitalfields as we live now. Yeah, David Rudinsky would not have gone there. I don't think. Great brunch, though. Um, I just wondered what other ideas you had about engaging psychogeographically in other ways than walking. Thanks for that question. I mean, um, I'm generally speaking kind of opposed to those kind of quirky uh, engagements and interventions in the landscape. People do it. And I say opposed to it, opposed to it, me doing it. Um, I'm really, I, I, I'm all for, uh, I'm supportive of anyone doing anything like this, really, because there's not as many people as we like to think. We all, everyone knows each other. Um, they could very comfortably fit in the back row tonight. In fact, they probably already are. Um, uh, so people do do things like one of my favourite stories actually uh, is the great clown William Kemp, the great jester, one of the probably the only famous jester in this country, I think, um, and he danced from Norwich to London. Which is, which is, and I can't remember why he did it. He's a jester, doesn't need a reason. Thought it'd be funny, <laughs> and it was probably really tiring. He was in Norwich as well. In Norwich, yeah, from Norwich, to, and he danced, but he danced through Stratford. So he danced down. That was why I was. Oh, shall I dance down? You know, Romford Road. The thing is, everyone would ignore you, wouldn't they? But um, I'm not. I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm glad that someone did. Um, the coracle thing again, though, was was one of those beautiful things where. Um, admittedly, it was the wonderful um, Paul Powsland uh, who sort of formed the River Roading Trust. There's a great video on my channel with me and Paul, him showing me the moorings they created. There's a lot more to it than that. Paul's a real guardian of the River Roading. And um, somebody, an artist, a wonderful artist. Oh, no, I'm going to forget his name, isn't it? Um, a wonderful artist whose name has momentarily escaped me. He uh, had created this coracle and launched it from the mooring uh, um, barking into the River Roading. And uh, I can't remember. Somebody wrote on Twitter, like, "I'd like to see, I'd like to see what we can do with this next." Anyone got any ideas? And um, a friend of mine who's a YouTuber called uh, Sean James Cameron, he just tagged me when I'd love to see John Rogers in that coracle, and I just clicked <laughs> like on it, and then within half an hour, like Ryan Powell, the artist Ryan Powell who created the coracle, Ryan Powell replied and went, "When do you want to go?" <laughs> I was like, well, this is happening. <laughs> but yeah. That was amazing. That was an amazing way. But it, you know, it's called um so it's a coracle, but it's um it's got a it's got a lid on it. Very important, it's got a roof. So it's like a kind of a sensory attunement coracle. So the idea being that once you're in it, it's sealing you in like a kind of sensory deprivation chamber, but that sounds a bit unpleasant. So it's sensory attunement. And it's made of reeds as well. So it it's meant to cut you off and you just experience the sounds of the river and the flow of the water and the way and the car i was there on a very windy day so the coracle was spinning around but spinning around very gently it was really beautiful really it was a stunning experience i was gonna do it again i'd love to 
I'd love to. I'm not sure Ryan would let me though, because I got a little bit. I got trapped under the railway bridge, and then I, I was trying. I was determined to get out because I wanted to carry on. I nearly capsized that coracle about four times. He was having heart attacks. He was freaking out. His beautiful coracle nearly got sunk. I mean, you can't sink a coracle. Well, I nearly did. <laughs> um, if you do on on Twitter and social things like that, Paul Powsland is an incredible person. He, he he's a barrister who was he refused to. Um, take gigs where he would be prosecuting um, environmental protesters and things like that. He's a big campaigner against the Taxi Rab campaign for barristers having to take the job. And also he's rewilding huge chunks of the roading where there's just concrete slabs and he's re... Yeah, he, it's, it's absolutely... He's a fantastic man who we'd love to have here. Um, I wondered, is there a sort of a TV series or a film that for you really kind of gives you a sense of place that you return to that kind of you know that, that really kind of makes you makes you feel something that gives you a sense of psychogeography is that a question hopefully it's some sort of a question that's a great question i mean tv series is really easy it's detectorists yeah i mean that's the everything I mean, that's, I love that show so much. I mean, that, you know, the way it starts with the, lay, the, the historical story and then the layering on top of that, I mean, that is all of it. And the characters and the humour, I mean, that's perfect. And uh, here's a nice bit of trivia for you. I, I got talked into doing stand-up uh, in 2000, I think it was, by a wonderful guy called Ivor Dembina, who's one of the old-school stand-up guys. He's been going forever. Um, he's got to go and see his current show. It's called Millwall Jew. It's uh, either is never boring, <laughs> and uh, it really brilliant character. And we were studying a clown course together uh, called Gaulier in um, in a church in Dollis Hill, right near Sherrick Green. Actually, as it turns out, and also on the water main that I first walked with Nick Patrimitrio in two thousand and five, that made my first YouTube video about where we walked this water main right past went right past where echo Gaulier was and i was just saying in the changing rooms i was like oh god i'm gonna have to try out some of this clowning stuff where can i go i suppose i could do some open mic because some of my mates have started doing open mic comedy one of whom became very famous off the back of it and um and Ivor went, don't do that mate they're horrible open mics and Ivor was doing because i've been doing stand-up for years all the big comedians have come through Ivor's clubs he said don't do that it'd be terrible come and do my club on a saturday night the open mics are awful after that you have to go and do the open mics so my first gig was saturday night at the hampstead comedy club and i was terrified obviously because doing clown in a workshop was different to stand up people stand up and talk about their penis for five minutes don't they generally whether they've got one or not and um and so I was like, oh, no, I wasn't going to do that. I'm going to clown. I need to practice my clowning. So anyway, I got up and did my set. And I came off. And I was pumped. It went really, really well. And I was all adrenalized. And I came off. And this guy was going, oh, wow, mate. I've just walked in and caught the end of your set. It seemed amazing. And I'd love to come and see the whole thing. I spoke to my girlfriend on the door. And she said, you were brilliant. Well, have you got any more gigs? And I was like, what? I don't know. I just survived five minutes of that. I don't, I don't even know my own name anymore. I mean, what's going on? It was Mackenzie Crook. And I didn't recognise him at all. Yeah, they had no idea. It's like, oh, Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> um, it was, yeah, he was a really, really lovely guy. So obviously he's going to have created an amazing TV show. Film, I'll narrow it down to one. I think it's London, Patrick Healer's film, London. I think if you've never watched it. And Gallivant by Andrew Cotting, um, which really I saw before Keeler's films. And Gallivant was the film that made me go and pick up a camera. Because I'd been backpacking 
And when I've gone back, I was really my sort of reference point there was was Jack Kerouac on the road. Really, I was reading Bruce Chatwin. My bizarrely, like my wife, who I met straight away in Sydney, her godmother is the head librarian at the Library of New South Wales, and so it's from her I got song lines and and um, song lines, which is a work of fiction apparently. But anyway, it's still a beautiful vision. Um, made up <laughs> nothing to do with how aboriginal australians see their landscape but apparently so i'm told by the chief librarian at the at the library of new south wales but so i had those reference points and then i saw gallivant the sydney film festival where i used to work in the bar and um it was amazing and there's this guy you know circumnavigating the coastline of, of britain he's like a clown he's performing he's hanging off the side of a camper van he's falling in the road and breaking his leg and he's then carrying on, hanging off a camper van with his leg in plaster. Uh, he's like shooting on Super 8 and posting all the bits of film in a letterbox in the Hebrides, hoping that they're going to get to the lab and get processed. Otherwise, he hasn't got a film that the uh, the the, um, the the BFI have given him funding for. It's just like this is what this is everything. You know, this is how I want to return to the United Kingdom. So I went out to the you know the junk shop cash converters equivalent in bondi junction and bought a super 8 camera and went right that's it i'm gonna start making films and so gallivant yeah and i got yeah now i do stuff with andrew as well mad andrew started doing stuff with ian sinclair andrew's the other part of the psychogeographer's dream ticket as i called it all that's left is to say a huge thank you to john to the Newham bookshop who've been selling john's books by the absolute van load for the past 10 years and to everyone who's comes out to the arch and supports us this weekend go for a walk have a look at what's around you and think about your relationship to it john it's always a huge pleasure please john rogers this has been the tap into podcast see you next time good night